if the mic is on. Okay. Tonight, uh, we'll be having a youth-led uh, service. So um, the young men have taken the time out of their busy lives to uh, prepare lessons for us. So make sure you come and support that um, and listen to what they have to say. Uh, and also... I'm coughing a little bit, sniffling a little bit, so you may you may hear me uh, stop and cough. So, excuse me in advance. But today we'll be looking at Second Thessalonians. Our topic is preparing for heaven. So, if you will turn there, we'll start from there. Second Thessalonians is a follow-up letter to the first letter to the Christians in Thessalonica after the issues that were discussed in the first letter, uh, continued. And, in fact, it seemed to have even gotten worse. Um, And in the letter, Paul comforts uh, the Christians there by reminding them that the persecution that they have been facing and been receiving and witnessing uh, will be repaid by God in the end. The suffering they were enduring was, in fact, the evidence of their faith, which will be rewarded when the time comes uh, for God to judge the world. Paul also reassures the Christians in Thessalonica who are confused and questioning uh, the nature of the return of Jesus. Uh, As some seem to have been proclaiming that the judgment had already happened, that it already took place, and they somehow missed it. Um, So Paul tells them not to uh, be quickly shaken in mind, um, or alarmed, either by spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2. And that leads us to the third and final section of Second Thessalonians, which, by the way, Second Thessalonians can be largely bro- broken into uh, three major sections, um, in which Paul famously discusses the problem of idleness. Though there are some parts of Second Thessalonians that's kind of confusing and hard to digest, for example, uh, chapter 2, there's a lot in there to, to uh, discuss and, and, and a lot in there that is hard to interpret, for sure. Um, but it seems that Paul is mostly addressing uh, in the letter about the judgment, about uh, the return of the Lord, the end times. What is fascinating to me as I study Second Thessalonians is that Paul unmistakably employs what uh, structure that, that he uses in a lot of his uh, texts, a lot of his letters, such as Ephesians, Romans, where he presents this big idea, right? He presents the principle of the matter in the first half of the letter, and towards the end, he ties it all together uh, in, in a call to action, a transformation, a life that looks different than the world. He does this a lot. Right. For example, in Ephesians, we can see that Paul is building his argument by beginning with what God has done for us and what he has done through Christ and what kind of blessings that we have in this relationship, in this new life that we have, this calling. Um, and he reminds us of what that means to us in terms of a practical living, a practical life, how that should transform us. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering 
and sacrifice to God. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Romans is another example of this kind of structure in which Paul explains the entire scheme of salvation in the first uh, first half of the book, I will say, and then uh, from the Jews, then to the Gentiles, the fundamentals of grace, of faith, of justifications, how all that works and how that works in our lives, in our Christian walk. And he brings it all in, in, in towards a focus to a transformed life, a renewal of our minds that looks different than the world. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through two, uh, one and 2. So, for Second Thessalonians, the big picture seems to be the return of the Lord and the certainty of God's judgment. That though the, the believers suffer right now and have to endure these things, those who afflict the, uh, the innocent and harm and do injustice, that eventually God's judgment will come to pass and they will be repaid for what they have done wrong. And those who have been faithful will be rewarded. That's the big idea. And Paul reminds the Thessalonians that it's something to look forward to. To those who do wrong, to those who do not believe in God, judgment is something scary. It's harsh. It seems wrong. But to us, people who believe, people who know, and people who endure in faithfulness, judgment is something that's something, it's something to celebrate. It's something that we look forward to. It's not something that's scary. Sure, there are some aspects of it where it's, you know, it makes you nervous. You are being judged after all. However, if we have that assurance in Christ, it is not something that is scary or that we don't look forward to. It's something that we have cause to celebrate. What is fascinating then is how Paul wraps up this letter by addressing those in Thessalonica who were idle. Right? When was the last time you considered heaven? And I mean considered it seriously. Like you sat down and took time to think about heaven. What is heaven? What does it mean for me? And how does it impact my life? Is it impacting my life. When I think of heaven, is this something that's just far off into the future that I don't really even think about that all that often? Or is it something that I think about daily? Is God's judgment something that is affecting my life today, every moment and every decision that I make? Is heaven something that's far off? Or is heaven something that's near? Is heaven something that is it something that we have right now access to rather than some far distant future that we don't know. And I think we fall into this trap, right? Obviously, we think about heaven when we're studying the Bible before we get, you know, we decide to get baptized. And while we are being baptized, right, we think about heaven, right? Obviously, that's why we're doing it, because we want to get into heaven. And maybe that first few years of, of, of your, your life as a Christian, you think about heaven a lot. Oh, man, I, I, I can't wait for that reward. I can't wait. So I'm going to work hard and, and keep at it so that I have the access into the, the eternity with God. But then what happens to all of us? Life gets busy. 
we, we have different, so many different focuses in our lives. We have jobs, we have obligations, we have relationships, we have all these things to uphold, and we have so many busyness in our lives, and, and, and sometimes heaven gets pushed into the back of our minds. It's not something that motivates us, it's not something that we think about every single day, it's not something that makes a difference in our decision making, it's just something that, that, that we've been promised, that we kind of push to the side, we'll worry about that when God's judgment comes, right? The danger of this is that we can become idle. Like the people Paul was addressing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 6. Now we know that Paul is addressing idleness in the sense of uh, secular work, right? Not working in the secular sense. However, I believe that this can be applied to us in a spiritual sense. I believe that it is human nature for us to dream. We dream a lot. We think about the future. And we want these things that we don't have yet. However, how often do we actually put the work in to achieve those dreams? How often do we, do we change our lives in order to make sure that the dreams that we dream become reality? I'm sure even just in this room, many dreams, many, many uh, dreams that we have dreamed when we were younger have quote-unquote died because it's, maybe it wasn't practical. Maybe we didn't put in the effort. Maybe circumstances changed. I think we can do that with heaven. right? When we put heaven off as something that's far off into the future and something that really doesn't impact us today, we have a danger of becoming idle. We have a danger of setting heaven aside, sidelining it, and becoming idle in doing so. We dream about heaven, but rarely do anything about it. The question then is how? How then can we keep ourselves from the trap of this human nature to become idle? To keep intentionality in the picture? To keep ourselves from becoming stagnant when it comes to heaven? When it comes to what heaven means for us? How can we keep the guarantee of heaven as our motivation, but also make sure that we do not become lazy? in our work for the kingdom. I believe that we can find five points that Paul uh, makes in this section that will help us to keep our focus while we prepare ourselves for the heavenly reward. Five ways for us to prepare for heaven and the lesson will be yours. And we'll begin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. Recognizing God's work. Number one, recognizing God's work. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In everything we do, we have to remember what God has done for us first. That is a foundation, the beginning point of everything, because if it, were, if it weren't for God, who has done everything that he can to begin this ministry of reconciliation with people like us who were sinners, who were once far off in our trespasses, dead, away from God, separated from Him. If it wasn't for God to first reach out to us, then we would have nothing. We wouldn't be here discussing about heaven because we would have no hope for it. So we have to recognize in everything that we do, first, we have to recognize God's work. 
knowing and remembering this will help us to keep heaven in our sights, not as a distant, faraway thing, faraway fairy tale that we talk about once in a while in, in VBS or Bible classes, but as a conviction that needs to be displayed through our lives every single day. Ephesians is once again an excellent text to go for this. Uh, because Paul especially spells out the spiritual blessings that we have uh, in Christ and what God has done for us initially. Blessed be the God of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, He uh, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, we read, But now in Christ Jesus you who who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God's ministry of reconciliation and Jesus' obedience to his will to that effect were what made it possible for us, who were all sinners, right, who are all sinners, Romans chapter 3, verse 9, to be able to draw near to God, not as trespassers, but rather as sons and daughters, adopted into this family, heirs to the kingdom. And through the inheritance, and though the inheritance is not yet received, obviously we're not in heaven right now, um, we're not with God in the sense that we are you know, physically with him in, in, in our resurrected bodies. We are not in eternity just yet. So we haven't received this reward yet fully, this inheritance yet fully. However, we have a foreshadowing of the real thing, a shadow of, of the thing to come, and that is the church. And what else is the church if it's not the body of Christ, in which the very members are the people who will be in heaven with us. You see, when you recognize what God has done for us, what Jesus has sacrificed in order to get us to this point, to get us to the starting line, and to what we belong now as the children of God, as heirs in the kingdom, we can clearly understand that heaven is not just some some trophy that we win at the end of the race, although in a sense it is. But it's more than that. It's not something that's just far off in the someday. It's something that we already have right now. It's something that we already have access to right now. It's something that we have in each other right now. And what is the point of recognizing God's work if it does not move us into change and action? Number two, we have to remember what was taught. Verse 15. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and, our, and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. The next step in a relationship after recognizing what the other party has done for you and has invested in you is to take responsibility and put up your part, uh, put up your end of the bargain of the relationship. After all, relationships are two-way roads. That means God's work for us is not the end of the story. God's work is not the not the 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 final act. No, it's the beginning. Right? It is only the beginning. It is the foundation upon which with which upon which we stand. What remains then is our duty 
to pour into the relationship in a manner that is appropriate for our relationship with God. Regarding such things, we have been taught countless times by Jesus, by the apostles, people like Paul, Peter, those who wrote the gospel accounts. We have been taught countless, countless times. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, Paul writes about the preeminence of Christ who surpasses and predates all things. It is through Christ we have, or that we who were once alienated and hostile have now been reconciled for the purpose of presenting us holy and blameless before him. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. And what are we to do about this fact? What does that mean for us in terms of practical life? Therefore, you receive Christ Jesus the Lord. So, what? Walk with him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. The author of Hebrews goes into a, a great detail about the nature of Jesus' sacrifice. For by a single offering, he has re- uh, re- uh, perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. And if that is what Christ has done to sacrifice himself for the sins of the world, then once again, what does that mean for us? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25 reads, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clear from, all, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Scripture is ripe with this idea that what God has done for us is something that we ought to remember constantly, and it ought to drive us to work. It ought to drive us into action. If we are aware of what God has done for us, then what are we to do? Authors like Paul in the New Testament lets us know. And as we study texts like these, we understand that our relationship with God is not one way. It's not just a one and done kind of thing. God has initialized the relationship, initiated it. But now we have a responsibility, a duty to hold up our end of the relationship. Number three, we pray for each other. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the world of the, the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from the from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. In our work in the kingdom, we must not be short on prayer. 
I mean, it is an outward display of an inward need. And guess what? Everyone of us is in need. Many in our culture look at prayer as something that's just kind of, you know, whatever. It's, it's something that you do before eating, you know, at your grandparents, right? But it's more than that. Prayer has to be more than that. It is an avenue of communication with the Creator. It is profoundly important, then, that we make prayer a, a, a regular part of our lives, right? A lot of people pray, you know, they say they're not religious, they're not spiritual, but they pray and just kind of throw it into the wind, and they pray to the universe or something like that. We're not like that. We pray. When we pray, we pray to a God who listens. We, to, we pray to a God who is hearing every word, everything that is in our hearts. Prayers that we can't even utter ourselves. We don't even know the words to pray. God listens and hears. Prayer is important. And if that's not convincing enough, guess what? Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed as much as he possibly could during his ministry and his life on earth. And if we profess to be his disciples, if we profess to be his, his workers, then we ought to take up his example. In John chapter 13, verse 12 through 16, Jesus, you know, after washing his uh, disciples' feet, he says, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And this principle does not just apply to washing each other's feet or taking care of each other or, and loving each other as brothers. It also applies in the sense that we ought to follow Jesus in every single example that he has given for us. And one of the best examples that he has set for us is his prayer, right? He, pray, he prays for uh, us in, in John chapter 17, a high priestly prayer, right? He even prays on the cross in, in the moment of his death. He prays three distinct times. Prayer was important. And if we are to keep ourselves from being idle, if we are to keep ourselves with our sight on heaven, with the intention of emulating heaven in our lives, we have to do so with prayer in our lives. If Jesus, our Savior and Lord of all, made prayer an integral part of his ministry and life, then we absolutely must do so. Number four, we resist idleness. Chapter 3, verse 6 through 12. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord, name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we will give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Though Paul's discussion about idleness is about secular work and making a living, I, again, I, I feel like we can apply this principle to something that, uh, that is of spiritual nature. Though Paul is calling the idol to make a living in the, in the secular sense, it also applies to us in our contribution to the church. 
to the body. Right? Think back to the example of the early church in Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 45 and 40, or 44 and 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. It was a common occurrence in the, in the early church uh, for, for people to literally sell their possessions and bring the money in so that benevolence can happen, that people's needs can be met. Now, we, we don't really do this in our society today, right? This meant that it was all the more important that everyone pull their own weights to the church, if, it, if at all possible. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 rhetorically asks the Christians there if Paul does not have the right to ask for support in order, that, in order to, to continue in his ministry without losing focus in it. And the answer is yes, Paul does have the right to ask uh, the Corinthian church for support. But he doesn't do that. Right? Paul surrenders this right that he has as an apostle of Christ for no reason other than the fact that the ultimate desire for Paul is that the gospel not be hindered, that there be no obstacle in the path of the spreading of the gospel. He pulled his own weight. Paul even said that he would give up his salvation for the sake of his brothers, his Jewish brethren in Romans chapter 9, verse 3. It was that important to Paul. It was that important to Paul that he worked for others, that he pulled his own weight in the church. And Paul firmly believed in the heavenly reward as he writes in Timothy, writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. When Paul was telling the Christians in Thessalonica not to be idle and to work and pull their weights, he was not just talk. He did that himself. Reading his words that span several letters of different purposes and audiences, we, we get this idea. It's clear the common thread is that Paul was an extremely hard worker. He was not idle. Not in the secular sense and not in the spiritual sense. In every sense of the word, he was not idle. In every sense of the word, he was diligent in all his work. That's why in 2 Timothy, at the end of his life, he could confidently say that the reward is waiting for him to be taken. He knew that looking back, that he had contributed to the family of God in a meaningful way. And that's what we must do also. Although we may all be financially independent from each other, like we're not like the, the early church where we have a pool of, of benevolence money where we distribute it to, to each other like that. We don't do that in our modern society. But we are not spiritually independent. We are spiritually dependent on each other. When we call ourselves a family of God, then that means that each and every member has an obligation to make a meaningful contribution to the body. That no one is left behind. That no one is better than the other or less. That everyone matters and everyone needs to contribute to the kingdom of God. We cannot be mere consumers in the kingdom. We have to be producers, each and every one of us. And lastly, we need to keep each other accountable. 
chapter 3, verse 13 through 15. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Paul calls the brothers in Thessalonica to keep away from those who are idle. Now, I don't think Paul. what Paul is saying is as soon as you catch somebody, you know, uh, slacking off a little bit, just immediately shun that person and do nothing to do with that person. But like he says in, in verse 15, don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. We have to keep each other accountable. When it comes to being idle, when it comes to becoming stagnant, everyone is in danger of that. Right? We're human beings. We're not perfect. So no matter how hard we work, eventually we will burn out. Eventually we will start sputtering. And eventually we will become stagnant. We get caught up in, the, in, in a singular modality and, and, and get into a rut. That's when brothers and sisters in Christ come in handy. We lift each other up. We encourage each other. We stir each other up for good works. And we remind each other of heaven. When we look at, when you look next to, your, next to you in your pews, the believing Christians, people who have been baptized into Christ, those are the people that you will see after judgment when we enter into eternity. By that we are encouraged. We encourage each other just by, even just by our presence. We encourage each other to keep doing good works and to not become idle and to not become stagnant. As we work diligently together for the work of the kingdom, we will set examples for each other. We'll motivate each other to do good works, as Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says, by our action and deeds. Not just empty words and, and pointing fingers and judgment. You know, you don't go to other people in the church and, and point fingers and say, oh, why aren't you doing this or why aren't you doing that? Not like that, but by ourselves doing good works, by ourselves keeping ourselves busy and making sure that we're not stagnant. We set examples to each other. We motivate each other to keep going. And in that way, heaven is not something that's just far off. It's not just uh, 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 some distant fairy tale. It's something that we see every day within ourselves, amongst the brethren. You know, I love the Lehman Avenue family retreat. You know, we had a blast this week, and I had to leave kind of early, unfortunately. But there's just something about going out to camp and singing and, and you know, worshiping together, learning and, and playing games, getting close with one another in a way that you really can't do in any other context. It just brings out a different kind of joy, and I love it so much. To think that heaven will be like that, but times infinity. It's mind-boggling. It's hard to grasp, but it is what that is. It will be infinitely greater, and I cannot wait. But if it is truly something that great, if heaven to us is truly something that great, and something that we look forward to that much, that it needs to be part of our lives today. It can't be just sidelined. It can't be pushed to the back of our minds as we get busy doing other things in this life. No, it has to be a part of our lives today. How are we emulating heaven as the body of Christ? Heaven is a wonderful thing to think about, but if all we do is dream about heaven as something that is just in the distance, 
unreachable, then we will have squandered the opportunities that God has given us to do incredible things and reach incredible heights with our spiritual family. In looking forward to heaven, let us not become blind to the fact that heaven on earth right now is here with each other in Christ as his body. And we ought to work diligently for it. If you're not a Christian, we hope that you recognize what a great thing heaven is and how it should motivate all of us and especially motivate you to move, to make that first move, take that first step to becoming a part of this body. And recognize that it is only accessible through the body of Christ, through the blood of Christ. We hope that heaven becomes a motivation for you to access that blood, to be baptized into his body, and to live a renewed life with his church. And if you are a Christian and you need the prayers of the church, we are here for you always. Again, heaven is something that we need to emulate right now. If any of us is struggling, then we need to make sure that we pray for each other and we keep each other accountable. And we need to emulate heaven in those ways. Whatever it is that you need, we are here to help and we are here to pray for you. So please come forward while we stand and sing.